could not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And thus far, the reading of God's word, and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I have some things to confess to you this morning. I believe that black lives matter. I believe that women have been grossly mistreated and oppressed. I believe that capitalism abuses the poor. I believe that in regard to LGBT plus, that love wins. And I believe in evolution. My philosophy of life includes all of these beliefs and many more. But more importantly, my philosophy takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I don't get to just make it up. The Word of God speaks to all of these issues. There is only one true light. The reason I read John 1, 1 through 11 this morning, a couple of reasons actually, we've been dealing with what the Bible says and warns us about regarding being the possibility of being cheated by philosophy, fooled if you will, tricked, deceived. The word of God is our foundation. Somebody's word is always the foundation. It's only a question of whose word is the authority. Whose word is the truth? The truth, a line can only be straight one way. It can be crooked many ways. So the truth is the truth. The question is, whose word? The Bible says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And and that's a reference clearly in the context here to Jesus Christ, who also created all things by the very power of that word. And so there are those of us who believe that and who go to that word to be informed and instructed and shaped and molded in our philosophy of life. There are those who reject that utterly and replace that word with some other word, perhaps their own word or the word of some other philosophies, other ways of trying to look at this world and make sense of it and understand it. My first three sermons in this series on Cheated Through Philosophy were intended to set the table for the discussion of some of the dominant philosophies of the last couple of centuries. In the first sermon, we focused on the Apostle Paul's warning, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, set over against Christ and his word. Anything contrary to him. 
In the second sermon, Paul warned in Ephesians 4 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and by the crafty, a cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The whole world is trying to sell us their ideas, a way of looking at things, a way of interpreting things, a way of thinking, a philosophy of life. And Paul warns us, don't be tricked, don't be fooled. And in the third sermon, he instructed us, saying that we should bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every single thought has to submit to him. He is the Lord. He is the boss of us. He is the creator. He is our creator. He is the judge of all the earth. He is the savior. He's much, much more. So now we turn to to apply the instructions of these first three sermons, of these passages I just referred to. I've been setting the table to justify this sermon and the sermons to follow. This will be a bit of a different kind of sermon. Normally we take a text and we preach the text. In this case, I took three texts and three sermons, and and now we're going to do what those texts told us to do. That is, equip the people of God so that they're not fooled by these deceptive philosophies. They're not tricked. So now I need to take a little time away from those texts and look at some of those philosophies and then make some observations. This is going to take several weeks. Uh, We're going to take a look at three major philosophies. What are the threats that would undo us and our children? Every age has its bad boys. History's record includes a very, very long list. Satan was the original bad boy, and the rest have simply been his agents. We can't take the time to evaluate them all or even to fully evaluate a few. You'll have to see Roy Bradley for that. Um, However, I can warn you of a few of the more dominant ideas. And so I want us to look over the next few weeks at three of the bad boys whose influence has been and still is prevalent in our culture. Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud, and Karl Marx. Remember, remembering that ideas always have consequences, always. They always bear some kind of fruit. Dale Alquist, uh, who writes a lot about G.K. Chesterton, uh, is kind of an expert there, uh, is writing some comments here. And we're gonna, I'm going to share with you a couple of quotes, longer quotes here from him and from Chesterton about these three guys. The basic cause, he says, of all the problems in modern education can be summarized in three words. Darwin, Marx, and Freud. The theories of these three men have pervaded all modern thought. Their ideas are much alike in that they are narrow, materialistic, fatalistic, and utterly anti-Christian. Their influence has been felt far beyond their limited fields. Darwin's ideas have contributed to a blind belief in progress, They have also served as the justification 
for cutthroat capitalism and the survival of the fittest mentality in our commercial and political relations. Marx's ideas plunged half of the world into darkness for most of the last century, but in the other half of the world they have served as the justification for the extended growth of the state and the loss of the authority of the family and the centrality of the home. And Freud's ideas have led to an overemphasis on sex and have served as the justification for the normalizing of the abnormal and the pervasive decline in morality. The academic community's user, excuse me, utter sellout to these three figures has elevated science, economics, and psychology above religion. In fact, all of these three have been invoked to explain away religion. Chesterton says that the primary public duty before us today is, quote, not to educate the uneducated, but to uneducate the educated. Dale Alquist, also commenting on Chesterton's observation, says this, Marx and Freud, each of whom rejected Christianity, um, gave us theories that have been used to promote some of history's most unnatural and degrading attacks on human dignity. If we want to rescue education in our society, we can start by kicking these three bad boys out of school and letting God back in. We need to take away the state's power and give it back to the parents, and we need to get rid of the fads and the fashions in education and start teaching the permanent things. As Chesterton says, teach to the young men's enduring truths and let the learned amuse themselves with their passing errors. And then one more here, uh, extended quote, uh, this from G.K. Chesterton. Each of them, referring to Darwin, Marx, and Freud, took not so much a half-truth as a a hundredth part of a truth and then offered it not merely as something, but as everything. Having never done anything except split hairs, each of them hangs the whole world on a single hair, whether it be biology, economics, or psychology. It is yet another mark of this sort of agnostic that he is ready to assert his absolute knowledge of everything to the verge of a contradiction in terms, just as he will always try to write a history of prehistoric man so he will always struggle to be conscious of his own unconsciousness, just as it is the latest fad to prove that everything is sexual, so it was the latest fad to prove that everything was economic. The Marxist notion, called the materialist theory of history, had the same sort of stupid self-confidence in its very insufficient materialism. As the one fad conceives everything about the bird to be connected with mating, so the other conceived everything connected with it uh, to consist of catching worms. These fads fade very fast, and it may seem hardly worthwhile to prick bubbles that will burst themselves. Nevertheless, there is one consideration that makes it worthwhile. It is a character of all these manias 
that they cannot really convince the mind, but they do cloud it. Above all, they do darken it. All these tremendous and rather temporary discoveries have had the singular fascination that they were not merely degrading, but also depressing. Each of them, in turn, leaves no trace on the true and serious conclusions of the world, but each, in turn, may leave very deep and disastrous wounds and dislocations in the mentality of the individual man. Instead of finding forgiveness for our sins, sins that we committed through our own fault, we get the most amazing psychobabble wrapped in the mantle of science, which explains that our sins are not sins, and whatever it was we did, it wasn't our fault. It was our parents' fault or our teachers' fault or simply nature's fault. The evil perpetuated by this sort of counseling is twofold. We become less responsible for our own sinful actions even while we long for a forgiveness that never comes. It is the marriage of Freud and Darwin of one pseudoscience to another. And so we will take up each of these men and their philosophies and offer a brief overview and biblical analysis. So we will begin today, we won't finish today, but we will begin with Charles Darwin. And I want to get intermix here some of his personal story, his biography, if you will, which will help us understand something about his philosophy. Charles Darwin's thinking and writing on the subject of evolution and natural selection caused him to reject the evidence for God in nature and ultimately to renounce the God of the Bible and the Christian faith. He didn't lack religious influences in his youth. He was baptized in Anglican and steeped in his mother's Unitarianism. Young Charles was brought up to pray. He used to run a mile or so from home to school, concerning which he wrote this, I often had to run very quickly to be on time, and from being a fleet runner was generally successful, but when in doubt, I prayed earnestly for God to help me, and I well remember that I attributed my success to the prayers and not to my quick running, and marveled how generally I was aided. That was his perspective as a boy. He had dropped out of medical studies after two years at Edinburgh, and his father suggested to him that perhaps he might be being called to be an Anglican uh, clergyman. Charles wasn't sure whether he could accept everything in the 39 articles, the, uh, the Confession of Faith, if you will, of the Anglican Church, Uh, the Church of England. However, he later wrote this, I like the thought of being a country clergyman. Accordingly, I read with care uh, Pearson on the Creed, that's that's a book, Pearson on the Creed, and a few other books on divinity. And as I did not then in the least doubt the strict and literal truth of every word of the Bible, I soon persuaded myself that our creed must be fully accepted. During his three years of theological studies at Christ College, Cambridge, he was greatly impressed by Paley's 
book, uh, Evidence of, Evidences of Christianity, and his book called Natural Theology, which argues for the existence of God from the argument from design. He recalled, quote, I could have written out the whole of the evidences with perfect correctness, but not, of course, in the clear language of Paley. And I do not think I hardly ever admired a book more than Paley's natural theology. I could almost formally have said it by heart. In a letter of condolence to a bereaved friend at that time, he wrote this, quote, so pure and holy a comfort as the Bible affords compared with how useless the sympathy of all friends must appear. And so his intention was to enter the ministry, and as such he wrote, uh, was never formally given up, but died a natural death, he said. When upon leaving Cambridge, he joined the HMS Beagle, which was a British naval vessel, as an unpaid naturalist. So this British vessel is going to actually go around the world, and Darwin has now signed up. He's not getting paid, but he'll get food and board, and uh, he'll get to take this trip around the world, and this is going to be his first exploring voyage. However, the religious influences of his life didn't go away at this point. In fact, in some ways, they went up. His official position was that of a a gentleman companion to the captain. And for the next five years, Darwin heard the Bible read and expounded on a regular basis. Captain uh, Robert Fitzroy was a deeply religious man who believed every word in the Bible and personally conducted worship services on the ship every Sunday at which attendance by all on board was compulsory. Darwin later recalled his own doctrinal orthodoxy when, in discussion with some of the officers, much to their amusement, he quoted the Bible, quote, as an unanswerable authority on some point of morality. And at Buenos Aires, he and another officer requested a chaplain, this is Darwin, requested a chaplain uh, to administer the Lord's Supper to them before they ventured into the wilds of Tierra del Fuego. Pretty dangerous when you're out exploring the unknown parts of the world. In fact, at one point later, Darwin uh, would comment, he had been to an island at one point and barely escaped uh, with his life because of cannibals. Uh, came back some years later uh, after missionaries had been there, and he said, if you're going to travel the world and explore unknown territories, you should hope that Christian missionaries got there ahead of you. So uh, he, he did have some practical appreciation. Now, despite all of the religious influences in his life, the decline of Darwin's faith began uh, when he first started to doubt the truth of the first chapters of Genesis. This unwillingness to accept the Bible as meaning what it said probably started with and certainly was greatly influenced by some of his other uh, reading material that he had on the ship. The newly published first volume of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geography, uh, the second volume was published after the Beagle left England and then was actually sent to Darwin, while he was on the ship. This was a revolutionary book for its time. 
It subtly ridiculed belief in recent creation in favor of an old earth, and it denied Noah's flood was worldwide. This, of course, was also a denial of divine judgment. Based on James Hutton's dictum that all natural, this is the presupposition, all natural processes continued as they were from the beginning. The, 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 the key to the present is the past. So if you want to know something about erosion, go out and measure how fast that rock is eroding today and then just back it up. See how long it took for that big rock to become a little rock. And that's how you can figure out how old things are. Lyle's book presented Darwin with the time frame of vast geological ages needed to make his theory of natural selection as a mechanism of evolution work. He needed a lot of time. One of Darwin's biographers called Charles's reading of this book his, quote, point of departure from orthodoxy. And when Charles Lyell died in 1875, Darwin said this, I never forget that almost everything which I have done in science I owe to the study of his great works. Inevitably, the more Darwin convinced himself that species originated by chance and developed by long, a, course, a long course of gradual modification, the less he could accept not only the Genesis account of creation, but lo and behold, it turns out that he could not accept the rest of the Old Testament as the divinely inspired word of God either. In his autobiography, Darwin wrote this, quote, I had gradually come by this time, that is 1836 to 1839, to see that the Old Testament was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus or the beliefs of the barbarians. When Darwin came to write up the notes from his scientific investigations, then he faced a choice. It's like we all face choices. He could interpret what he had seen either as evidence for the Genesis account of supreme of supernatural creation or else evidence of naturalism consistent with Lyell's theory of long ages. And he chose the latter, uh, that everything in nature has come about through accidental, unguided purposelessness rather than as the result of divinely guided, meaningful intention. You see, again, much is at stake. Really, everything is at stake. After several years, in 1859, his book, Origin of Species, was the result. In 1844, he wrote to his friend Joseph Hooker, he said, I am almost convinced that species are not, and then he put in parentheses, it is like confessing a murder. Species are not immutable. Concerning this, Ian Taylor writes, quote, many commentators have pointed out that the murder he spoke of was, in effect, the murder of God. Having abandoned the Old Testament, Darwin then renounced the Gospels. This loss of belief was based on several factors, including his rejection of miracles. Quote, Darwin says, the more we know about the fixed laws of nature, the more incredible do miracles become. 
His rejection of the credibility of the gospel writers, quote, the men of that time were ignorant and credulous to a degree almost incomprehensible to us. His rejection of the gospel chronology, quote, the gospels cannot be proved to have been written simultaneously with the events. He also rejects the gospel events. Summing it up, he wrote, by such reflections as these, I gradually came to disbelieve in Christianity as a divine revelation. Now, I want to back up. I started with John 1 today, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus is the light of the world. You see, Darwin as the foundation of his own philosophy that's going to emerge and is emerging is rejecting that. That is not the foundation for him. He is going to replace that with something else. Some other word. Some other authority. He's already acknowledged that Charles Lyell was one of the most influential persons for him. On another occasion, he wrote, I never gave up Christianity until I was 40 years of age, and he turned 40 in 1849. Commenting on this, Darwin's biographer James Moore says, just as his clerical career had died a slow, natural death, so his faith had withered gradually. One immediate effect of Darwin's rejection of the Bible was his loss of all comfort from it. The hopeless grief of his latter letters, later letters to the bereaved contrasts sharply with his earlier letters. In 1851, his dearly loved daughter, Annie, age 10, died from what the attending physician called a billowous fever with typhoid character. Charles was devastated, and he wrote, quote, Our only consolation is that she passed a short though joyous life. Two years later, a friend who also had lost a child, he writes, uh, his only appeal was to time, which, quote, softens and deadens one's feelings and regrets. Now, like many things, it turns out Darwin's father and grandfather played a role in this. One major factor that contributed to his apostasy is worth noting, and that is the role of his father, Robert, and his grandfather, Erasmus. Both were so-called free thinkers. So disbelief was an acceptable trait within the Darwin family, perceived not as, quote, a moral crisis of rebellion, but perhaps even a, a filial duty. Uh, this, in other words, like father, like son. Indeed, in 1838, when Charles had become engaged to Emma Wedgwood, uh, a very devout Unitarian, Robert uh, had felt the need to advise his son to conceal his religious doubts from his wife. Uh, other households didn't discuss such things. Surrounded as he was by unbelievers and having soaked his mind in literature and rejected the concept of divine judgment in earth's history, here, here is a, one of his musings, Charles's thoughts here. He said, I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this 
is a damnable doctrine. The descent into darkness did not stop here. In 1876, in his autobiography, Darwin wrote, Formerly I was led to the firm conviction of the existence of God and the immortality of the soul. In my journal, I wrote that while standing in the midst of the grandeur of the Brazilian forest, quote, it is not possible to give an adequate idea of the higher feelings of wonder, admiration, and devotion which fill and elevate the mind. End quote. He's quoting himself there. He continues, I well remember my conviction that there is more in man than the mere breath of his body, but now the grandest scene would not cause any such convictions and feelings to rise in my mind. In 1880, in reply to a cor- in, in, in replying to a correspondent, uh, Charles wrote, I am sorry to have to inform you that I do not believe in the Bible as a divine revelation and therefore not in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. In the last year of his life, when the Duke of Argyle suggested him to him that certain purposes seen in nature, quote, were the effect and expression of mind, Charles looked at him hard and said, quote, well, that often comes over me with overwhelming force. But at other times, and he shook his head vaguely, adding, it seems to go away. Thus, did this tragically mistaken man drift from a childlike trust in one who helped him run to school on time into an abyss of hopelessness and agnosticism? While the spiritual journey of a Christian is a journey out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light, that of Charles Darwin was a slippery slide out of the gospel light into the sheer blackness of darkness forever. Darwin's unbelief, like that of so many people today, had its roots in a mind which first rejected the revelation of God in the Bible and then was unwilling to accept the revelation of God which God himself has given in nature. Charles Darwin the man, along with Darwinism the philosophy, is the very outworking of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Remember his friend talking about seeing mind in the creation? And Darwin says, yeah, sometimes I see that, but then I, I push it out. So, uh, because that which they, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things." Well, 
Lord willing, we will continue with Darwin and his philosophy next Lord's Day. I wanted to set the table with a little background on his personal story, uh, and then we'll take a closer look at, at what he believes and what has permeated into our culture and really is is at every point, everywhere. It is the thing that, if there is anything that unifies modern universities, it would be the theory of evolution. That is the, the one central thing that is assumed the moment you walk in the classroom. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken to us saying, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Thank you for revealing yourself through the creation and in your word and by your son. We recall the words of Jesus from Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. O Lord, keep us faithful and true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.